0: Hyperfund.
1: If I ran the crypto enforcement unit at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, and I were as crypto-skeptical as the actual SEC seems to be, I guess I would want my cases to divide roughly evenly into two categories.
0: Important cases against big crypto projects and, especially, crypto exchanges, cases that will set important precedents and have large impact on the crypto industry. Enforcement actions against exchanges, in particular, are likely to have huge effects, If you shut down crypto trading at centralized exchanges, you get a lot more consumer protection bang for your buck than if you have to shut down every questionable crypto project individually. Dumb Easy Cases Against Wild Scams
1: Category 2 is important for a couple of reasons. For one thing, those cases are fun for the lawyers. Also, you'll probably win. Also, people do seem to lose a lot of money to wild crypto scams, and it's nice to get some back for them.
0: For another thing, those cases do set good precedents. If you bring a securities fraud case against an absolutely wild scam, the scammers will probably say, no, 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 we were not doing securities fraud because our scam tokens were not securities. But that argument won't go over well with a judge who will be inclined to say, ah, come on, you were doing a scam. I'm not going to let you off on a technicality. And so the judge will be more likely to rule that the tokens were securities. It is perhaps not a coincidence that we have discussed two big crypto cases that are going on in New York federal courts right now, one against Ripple Labs incorporated which sold investors' tokens that are down a modest 66% from their 2021 peak, and the other against Terraform Labs Private, which sold investors' tokens that are down a dreadful 99.9999% since their 2022 peak, and whose founder is in jail in Montenegro.
1: Both Ripple and Terra have argued that their tokens are not securities. Ripple's argument on that point has mostly succeeded, while Terra's has failed. Ripple may or may not have a better legal argument, But it definitely has a better look than Terra.
0: Also, just the more hilarious crypto frauds the SEC can sue, the better is its broad argument to courts and legislators and the public that come on, someone needs to regulate crypto, and nobody else is doing it, so you might as well let us. If the SEC finds one ludicrous fraud a week in the crypto space, it is harder to argue that the SEC should just leave crypto alone.
1: Anyway, here's a dumb crypto enforcement case from the SEC against a barely crypto thing called HyperFund.
0: The Securities and Exchange Commission today charged Shui Li, aka Sam Li, and Brenda Chunga, aka Bitcoin Beauty, for their involvement in a fraudulent crypto asset pyramid scheme known as Hyperfund that raised more than $1.7 billion from investors worldwide.
1: According to the SEC's complaint, from June 2020 through early 2022, Li and Chunga promoted Hyperfund membership packages, which they claimed guaranteed investors high returns, including from Hyperfund's supposed crypto asset mining operations and associations with a Fortune 500 company. As the complaint alleges, however, Lee and Chunga knew or were reckless in not knowing that Hyperfund was a pyramid scheme and had no real source of revenue other than funds received from investors. In 2022, the Hyperfund scheme collapsed and investors were no longer able to make withdrawals.
0: From the complaint this case does seem like one that was just fun for the lawyers.
1: One of the details Chunga touted was the fact that Lee and another one of the founders were featured and interviewed in an episode of an Amazon Prime documentary series called Next, Blockchain.
0: In one presentation, Chunga leveraged Hyperfund's founders' public-facing profiles in order to persuade investors that there was no risk in investing with the hypertech group. Some people say things, how do we know they won't just take our money and disappear? Well, ladies and gents they have more to lose than to gain they're all over cnn they have publicly traded companies they are on amazon prime their faces are everywhere they have more to lose than to gain
1: there was a pivot to the metaverse
0: in the fall of 2021 hyperfund rebranded itself as hyperverse hyperverse was officially launched on december 5, 2021. part of the new hyperverse narrative was that the hypertech group was creating a virtual world to connect people in the hyperverse ecosystem which you would enter using your virtual avatar.
1: Speaking of virtual avatars, apparently its CEO was fake.
0: During this launch event, which took place live online and was recorded and then made available publicly online, Hyperverse presented a new supposed CEO of Hyperverse, Stephen Reese Lewis. In a recorded video played during the launch event, Lewis thanked everyone for their participation and for giving him the chance to share more about Hyperverse, our operations, and future direction. After repeatedly invoking a prominent social media company's rebranding, CEO Lewis explained that Hyperverse offered a virtual world with new business opportunities and the development of a crypto asset, characterized as a native token, called HVT. In reality, the person presented as Lewis was an actor playing a role of a fabricated character. He was not the CEO of Hyperverse.
1: There is very little discussion of Hyperfund's technology or token economics, and I'm not sure it had any. Its technology was telling people that if they invested money in its business, it would give them way more money in return. That does sound like a securities offering, doesn't it?
0: Auditor independence.
1: The business of public company auditing has, at its heart, a conflict of interest.
0: Your job, as an auditor, is to scrutinize a company's financial statements and make sure that they are true and accurate, and then to certify those statements to the public. If the company is doing financial fraud, you should try not to certify their financial statements. If you sign off on the financial statements of a big fraud, you will look bad and maybe get in trouble. The company gives you that job. It hires you, in a reasonably competitive market. If you are annoying to work with, or are difficult about signing off on things, then it might hire someone else. If you are pleasant and friendly and take the company's chief financial officer out to nice dinners, she will be more likely to retain you.
1: If you are friends with your clients, you will keep more clients. But if you are friends with your clients, you might not be a strict independent auditor of their financial statements.
0: It is hard to get rid of this conflict of interest, though people sometimes suggest ideas. If you assign auditors to companies randomly, they'd presumably be more independent? If shareholders paid them, instead of management, that might help? But there are two main ways to mitigate it by regulation. The more important way is that you just have professional standards of quality and ethics for auditors, and you train the auditors in these standards and then hopefully the auditors will do a good audit even if they are friendly with their clients. Sorry, I know we just went out to a nice dinner last night, but I found some errors in your financials and my duty as an auditor outweighs our friendly relationship, the auditor maybe says, or at least she worries that if she signs off on a bad audit she will get in trouble.
1: The other way though is that regulation prohibits some conflicts of interest that make auditors less independent. Usually, not the most important one that the company's managers hire and work with the auditor who sign off on their financials because that is central to the whole business. Though we talked a few years ago about an auditor who got in trouble for too blatantly using his friendship with a company's chief accounting officer to win that company's auditing business. But usually regulation restricts other conflicts that are easier to identify. Auditing firms tend to also have consulting businesses, and it used to be standard practice for them to cross-sell consulting services to audit clients. But that is now mostly forbidden in the U.S. And we talked once about a guy who repeatedly accepted tens of thousands of dollars in casino markers from a casino he was auditing, which I suppose compromised his independence.
0: The rules get nitpicky enough that the big audit firms just have to do occasional mass apologies for violating them constantly. The Financial Times reports,
1: The Big Four accounting firms have admitted hundreds of violations of regulations designed to protect the independence of their audit work, following the introduction of new disclosure rules in the U.S.
0: PwC said on Monday that it had identified 129 breaches of independence rules affecting 74 clients and Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. Inspectors had found a further one themselves while inspecting audit work in 2022. Deloitte said in its audit quality report last month that it had told PKOB inspectors of 129 breaches across 78 clients in 2022, affecting approximately 3% of its U.S. audits, and 107 across 53 clients in the 2023 inspection cycle. A also said it had found independence violations affecting 3% of its audits in 2022.
1: What kind of violations?
0: Oh, PwC, Deloitte and A. All said that they had looked into each violation and concluded there were no cases in which the independence of an audit was actually compromised. A person familiar with the situation at PwC said one example was the spouse of a staffer holding a cash balance on payments app Venmo while PwC was auditing Venmo's parent company PayPal.
1: Deloitte said the most common instances of non-compliance were, related to financial relationships and employment relationships, of approximately 145,000 professionals monitored.
0: I would characterize them as technical violations, said Dennis McGowan, vice president of the Center for Audit Quality, which represents large U.S. accounting firms. These firms are big, with a lot of people in them, and they have put in the controls and systems to track people's compliance, which is why these are almost always self-reported items.
1: I submit to you that if you are the partner on the PayPal audit, The fact that one of your accountants has a spouse who who has a cash balance on Venmo is much, 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 much less likely to compromise the independence of your audit than is the fact that you have to talk to PayPal's employees to do the audit, and you want those conversations to be friendly.
0: Fine, now you can sell tax credits.
1: We talked yesterday about how a change in U.S. bank capital rules might affect the market for tax equity financing, a form of quasi-debt financing in which big banks fund green energy projects by effectively buying the tax credits that they are expected to generate over their lifetimes. The idea is that to be respected by the Internal Revenue Service, these deals cannot really be just buying the tax credit or lending against it. They have to look like equity investments in the green projects. You don't go around selling tax credits, I wrote, and your tax lawyers will get mad if you say that. But to get good capital treatment from bank regulators, these deals cannot really be equity financing. They have to look like safe, debt deals. The glory of modern US financial engineering is that banks can build a product that satisfies both of these objectives. That is equity to the IRS, but debt to bank regulators. And they did, and it was good. And now new bank capital rules might kill it. And the banks are mad.
0: A bunch of readers emailed, though, to point out that the problem isn't that big because the 2022 Inflation Reduction Act did make it legal to just buy and sell certain green energy tax credits directly. So instead of getting a big bank to do the tax equity financing song and dance, which currently works, but which might not work under proposed new capital rules, you can just sell the tax break, for cash up front, to a bank or anyone else who wants to buy it. Here is an Akin Gump memo on the tax credit transferability guidance.
1: This is not necessarily a perfect substitute for tax equity, And the American Council on Renewable Energy report that I quoted yesterday says, While the IRA provides new tax credit monetization options through transferable tax credits and direct pay, tax equity is expected to remain the most common and preferred option for developers because it monetizes both the tax credits and other tax benefits, such as tax depreciation. Still, I suppose the broad conclusion might be that when a financial engineering door is closed— a financial engineering window is opened.
0: Art Valuation
1: We have talked a few times about the long-running dispute between art dealer Yves Bouvier and his former customer, Dmitry Ribolovlev. Basically, Bouvier would buy a painting for $126 million, tell Ribolovlev I think I can get this painting for you for $185 million, the sellers want $190 million, but I'll try to talk them down, and then he'd sell Ribolovlev the painting for $184 million ribolovlev thought he got a good deal and good service from bouvier who was able to talk the sellers down from their asking price but really he got a bad deal and bad service from bouvier who was the seller and who took only a little bit off his own enormous undisclosed markup
0: the question is basically was bouvier allowed to do this as a third-party seller in a sharp elbowed market or not as a trusted advisor in a fiduciary relationship with ribolovlev Courts in various countries have mostly said it's fine, but there's a trial on in New York now in which Rebelovlev is suing Sotheby's, the auction house, for helping Bouvier inflate his valuations.
1: For some reason this is a thing? Like, Bouvier would buy a painting at a more or less made-up number from someone else, and then he'd make up a higher number to tell Rebelovlev and then Rebolovlev would pay that higher number or something close to it. But before doing so I suppose he needed some independent third party to say, Oh, yes, that number, that's a good number. None of this is real, there are no cash flows, each item is unique, and there is no fungible liquid market for it, and the correct value for a da Vinci painting is surely whatever the most enthusiastic Russian oligarch or Saudi prince will pay for it. Any valuation that anyone gave Ribolovlev was necessarily self-referential.
0: Here's a fun Financial Times article about how that case is going.
1: Over multiple days of testimony, Samuel Vallette, the global head of private sales at Sotheby's, who sold many of the works to Bouvier, the Swiss dealer who worked for years with Ribble of Love, detailed the process by which works, including Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi, were procured for Bouvier, his top client at the time.
0: Salvatore Mundi's modern price history is
1: A group of art dealers paid $1,175 for it in 2005 at an auction in New Orleans. They had it restored, and people became convinced it was the original by da Vinci. In 2013, Sotheby's negotiated a sale between those dealers and Bouvier, who started negotiations with what he described as a brutally low offer of about $47 million. The sellers were hoping for at least $100 million. Ultimately, Bouvier paid $68 million, plus a painting by Picasso valued at $12 million, which I guess adds up to $80 million, if you believe the number on the Picasso. Bouvier would sell the painting to Ribolovlov shortly afterwards for $127.5 million. Four years later, Rebolovlov resold the work at auction, this time at Christie's, for a record-shattering $450 million apparently to Abu Dhabi.
0: So the reasonable range of possible values of this painting would run from, say, $1,000 to $450 million. Just, really, pick a number and Sotheby's did.
1: Emails show how, as art valuations soared, margins of $5 million to $10 million on these trophy artworks felt like rounding errors. Over email in 2015, Vallette expressed frustration when a colleague at Sotheby's pushed back on his request for a higher valuation for the Da Vinci paint two years after the original sale to Bouvier was agreed. The colleague said 95 millionaires was the most he could live with. But Vallette told the court he thought. 95 was too precise, and an awkward numb pushed for 100 million euros or about 110 million.
0: Vallette said he wanted a big, round number. In this world, if you're at 95 million euros, you're at 100 million euros, he said.
1: I'm sorry, that's just correct. If you are providing a valuation of that painting to a potential buyer, the correct valuation is just a piece of paper saying, how frisky are you feeling? Too much precision really is awkward.
0: Pivot to AI. Sure whatever. Advertising giant Publicis group SA made an unusual executive hire in mid-2022. A lion-headed digital avatar named Leon who would serve as chief metaverse officer, guiding clients through the virtual realm that had seized real-world attention.
1: His moment in the spotlight didn't last long.
0: Five months later, ChatGPT debuted and the buzz that had surrounded the metaverse ever since Mark Zuckerberg rebranded Facebook as Meta Platforms incorporated shifted to artificial intelligence. Leon and other human officers focused on the metaverse, an immersive digital reality where people can interact with one another, quickly became an endangered species.
1: Instead, businesses are scrambling to appoint AI leaders, with Accenture and GE Healthcare making recent hires. A few metaverse executives have even reinvented themselves as AI experts, deftly switching from one hot technology to the next. Compensation packages average well above $1 million, according to a survey from executive search and leadership advisory firm Hydric & Struggles. Last week, Publicis said it would invest 300 million euros, 327 million over the next three years on artificial intelligence technology and talent.
0: I mean, if your chief metaverse officer was an imaginary digital lion, one, firing him is fine, he won't be upset he doesn't need this job to feed his virtual cubs, and, two, surely your new chief artificial intelligence officer should be a chatbot? It is truly incredible how intense and how brief the whole metaverse thing was.
1: It's been a long time since I have have had a conversation with a client about the metaverse, said Fawad Bajwa, the global AI practice leader at the Russell Reynolds Associates executive search and advisory firm. The metaverse might still be there, but it's a lonely place
0: most companies have largely moved on from the metaverse. The word was uttered just twice on earnings calls at S&P 500 businesses last quarter, compared with 63 times in 2022's first quarter, according to Bloomberg transcript data. That year, 8 out of 10 CEOs said they were either hiring dedicated talent with expertise in the space or expanding the responsibilities of their leadership teams to cover it, according to Russell Reynolds all were chasing a piece of a global business opportunity that McKinsey and company consultants at the time optimistically estimated could be worth $5 trillion by 2030.
1: You could imagine three skill sets here?
0: Metaverse skills, I don't know, designing digital lion avatars or whatever. AI skills, understanding how modern artificial intelligence models work, how to build them, how to deploy and use them, etc. Internal politics and entrepreneurship, understanding that saying metaverse would get you a big job and budget and bonus in 2022. But saying AI will get you those things in 2024. What magic word will get you those things in 2026? Probably somebody will know before I do.
1: My assumption is that skill 1 was valuable in 2022 and skill 2 is valuable in 2024, though I can't be sure. I have no particular evidence that the chief metaverse officers hired in 2022 were in fact any good at doing metaverse stuff, was the lion? And my assumption is that skill 3 is sort of permanently valuable. Perhaps more so the more trends and technologies change. Pricing. I don't know, this is just a useful thing to learn at a young age.
0: He broke into the city's private school set and soon found himself in the fancy Fifth Avenue apartment of a new client. Rim says that one day this teen's mother gave him a reality check. As Rim recalls it, she said, Chris, if you want to make it here in New York, you cannot charge $75. No one's going to take you seriously. RIM says she told him to charge $1,500 an hour and vowed to bring him more clients.
1: That's from this New York Magazine story about Christopher RIM, the founder of Command Education, an extremely expensive college admissions counseling service. As a young man out of Yale, he started a modestly priced college admissions counseling service, until a client correctly told him that there was more demand for an extremely expensive one.
0: We've talked about RIM before. When Bloomberg News reported that another parent gave him another great pricing idea, Rim said a parent at New York's Trinity School, a $64,000 a year Ivy League feeder, once offered him $1.5 million if he would agree not to work with any of his child's classmates. Basically if you are extremely rich, and buying positional goods like good college resumes, it is to your benefit for those goods to be as expensive, and thus exclusive, as possible. If you are in the business of selling those goods, that's nice for you. Things happen. Silicon Valley investors build $300 billion cash pile and startup funding crunch. Scandal hit trading desk turns into money spinner at Wells Fargo. Private fund lobbyists get set for high stakes SEC court fight. The real estate downturn comes for America's premier office towers. Saudi Arabia ditches plan to raise oil production. Indonesia's flood of nickel sparks Darwinian battle for survival among miners. U.S. oil drillers are going electric, if they can get the electricity. Ex-Freshfields partner convicted over tax scandal. Steve Cohen, John Henry group set to invest billions in PGA Tour. Musk says first Neuralink patient received implant and brain. Shaquille O'Neal wants to buy whatever NBA team is available.
1: If you'd like to get money stuff in handy email form, right in your inbox, please subscribe at this link. Or you can subscribe to Money Stuff and other great Bloomberg newsletters here. Thanks.
0: Don't take those numbers too seriously. CoinMarketCap tells me that Ripple's XRP token briefly peaked at $3.021 in January 2018, and is at about 53 cents now, but that's a very brief peak and I'm not going to worry about it too much. Its post-2018 peak is about $1.56 in April 2021, so down about 66% to today. Meanwhile Terra's original Luna token hit $113.01 in April 2022 and is worth apparently $0.0001 today.